We're continuing our series and looking at the, the topic of community. And if you're new to Grace Community Church, our typical pattern is to teach through the entire scripture verse by verse, but uh, we've taken a little bit of a break to look at those things in Jesus' life that seem to be significant and were part of his kind of regular practice or his lifestyle. And we looked early this year at the practice of prayer and how important that was in Jesus' life and how he would regularly get away in a quiet place to be with his Father and to commune with his Father but then we see Jesus moving back into community with other people, that Jesus didn't come and live as a lone ranger, but he came and he gathered a group of 12 and even more around him to go through this life with. So let me ask you a question. If a friend comes to you and says, where can I go to experience the presence of God? I want to experience the presence of God and feel the sense of his transcendence. Where where can I go? How would you answer that question? You may say, oh man, there's these great Catholic shrines, lords and stuff like that, and every once in a while strange, amazing things happen. You need to, to go there. In our day and age, um, there's all sorts of interesting ways that people are supposed to encounter the transcendent. Um, one that's becoming increasingly popular is through psychedelics. Uh, psilocybin, uh, mushrooms, shrooms, uh, we used to call it. I just read an article this week in one of the online um, news magazines. It says, quote, this is the title, I'm a mom microdosing magic mushrooms. Here's how it's changing how I see the world. And she goes on in this article, not that I want this incredible, you know, kind of transcendence, you know, psychedelic experience, but I want to experience kind of peace and connection with the transcendent. And she talks about cancer patients who use psilocybin and hallucinogenic dosages to psychedelically approach their impending death. And according to some preliminary studies, I love all these things, not peer-reviewed studies, but it works. In both NYU and Hopkins trials, some 80% of cancer patients showed clinically significant reductions in standard measures of anxiety and depression. So here's what I'm wondering, if cancer patients can make peace with their own deaths, can I approach my existential distress about the impending sixth mass extinction of Earth in a similar way? She's really worried about climate change. What would happen if I could look deeply into the eyes of my own extinction? Is there a realm where I can make some peace with the quality and quantity of the human years my children and their descendants face in the on? coming climate crisis. Then she talks about a Robin Cathart Harris, head of psychedelic research at the Imperial College of London. I don't know if that's a reputable college or not, but she says she likened the effects of psychedelics on the brain to shaking a snow globe. You shake it and there's disorder there, but then the snow will settle again. He explains that a brain has fallen into pathological patterns that can benefit from this reorganization. And this is what I want to say and focus on this morning. It's those new paths I'm after, a rite of passage, not a rite that folds me further into human culture, but a passage that folds me into nature, a sacrament, a spiritually significant experience, the way indigenous peoples of Central America and Mexico have been using psilocybin for centuries. And she says, I'm not advocating drugs per se, 
What I am advocating is a seismic shift in what we hold meaningful, a conscious exploration of the dark that surrounds us, and an embrace of anything that gets us closer to nature. I have, in my study of psilocybin, learned many new words. Other names for psychedelics include intactogen, touching within, empathogen, generating a state of empathy, and then this is the most significant and my favorite, entheogen, that which causes God to be experienced. So this woman who's a mom of kids, she sends her kids off to school and then she nibbles on these psychedelic mushrooms, is doing this, she says, because I want to encounter God, a sense of the sacred. We live in the midst of a culture that has been very secular for a while, but increasingly there are voices that are saying, you know what, that's not enough. There has to be a sense of transcendent that I have in my life to keep going. It's not enough just to say, okay, I'm going to maximize pleasure and minimize pain for the 70, 80 years that I'm here on this planet. There's got to be more than that. And we're seeing an increasing rise in suicides among people that have been taught since they're this big man. You're just a cosmic accident. There's no meaning. There's no purpose to life. And people are looking at that and they're saying, you know, I can't. That's not enough. There has to be something more than that. So with someone who's struggling with, hey, that's not enough, what do you tell them? Where do they go to encounter the transcendent? If you were alive at Jesus' day, it would be a pretty easy question to answer. It'd be like, no, oh, that's easy, man. You go to where? You go to the temple. That's where you encounter God. That's where you get right with God. And if you're a Jew, you go to the temple in Jerusalem. If you're a Greek, you go to the temple of Zeus or Aphrodite or one of that's where you encounter God. The temple was a place where the presence of God was made manifest on the earth. And so, where's our temple today? For Paul and for Peter, they said something really, really radical. In a day and age where a temple was a physical location where you went to meet with God, they said something to the believers that was radical and would have sounded radical to everybody. He said, you are the temple of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Again, we've been talking about community and we've been looking at these analogies or metaphors that Jesus uses for the community of believers. And the first one we looked at was family. And we saw how Jesus represented family not as biological bloodlines, but it's like, who are my brothers and sisters? It's those that love and follow my Father and obey Him. So he's saying that there's a community of believers that's bonds are even tighter than biological family, and that's what he's calling us to be as a community. And then we looked at another metaphor that Jesus uses, that we're a body, and the main focus there is that we are interdependent, not independent, that we depend on one another, and God's given us all a role to play in this thing, that none of us are unimportant. And we've looked at the different spiritual gifts that God has given his body that we're to connect. And this morning I want to focus on two other metaphors that are used in the New Testament about the community of believers, and that's that we're a temple first and that we're priests as well. 
So if you have your Bibles, if you turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats near you. There should be an index in the front, if you're not familiar with it, to find the book of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to start with chapter 3. He says this twice in 1 Corinthians. Looking at verse 16 in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, Don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. And then a couple chapters later, in chapter 6, verse 19, he says the same thing. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So twice there, Paul says, you are the temple. And in our very individualistic culture, how we typically look at that is, I'm the temple, right? I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, and because of that, chapter 6 deals with the reality of, don't unite yourself with prostitutes, don't get involved in sexual sin, because you're bringing this temple, and you're joining it with something that's unholy. But I want to have kind of what I'm going to call the, the Southern Bible translation. And the big Southern Bible translation difference is going to be, it uses y'all in there. Because if you look at these, both of these passages, starting, we'll do chapter 6 here, or do y'all not know that y'all's body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within y'all, whom y'all have from God? Y'all are not y'all's own, for y'all were bought with a price, so glorify God in y'all's body. So that the idea there is there's a singular temple, there's a singular body, but all of us as believers make up that body. It's collective. As a community, we are to be the temple of God. And Peter says the same thing in the book of 1 Peter. If you want to turn there, we're going to look at chapter 2, starting with verse 4. He says, You come to him. A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house or temple to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter here is saying the same thing as Paul, and he's using a little bit different analogy, saying, you all as believers, you're living stones that are part of the temple of God. God. So we as Christians, the writers of the New Testament, Paul says, I I want you to know this. Don't you remember this? Don't you grasp this reality? You are the temple of God. And I think what they're getting at is we are the place and the people where the presence of God is meant to be experienced. Again, Collectively, all of us are to be that place where God's presence is made evident and manifest. As we were going through the book of Exodus, we looked at the building of the tabernacle, right? And the the big deal there was Moses was like, I want you to be with us, your people. And God was up on the mountain, and there was smoke and fire and everything going on up there. And the people are like, oh, we don't want... God to be too near us and God says well and Moses says but I want you to go with us so how is that going to happen so 
All these instructions were given for the tabernacle, which would later become the temple under Solomon's construction, but that that would be resident with the people. And we see that when God came and made his presence manifest in that temple, that same smoke came and filled the temple, the presence of God among his people. Jesus used the same analogy. We see this in the book of John where it says he The word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. He templed among us. He was the presence of God incarnate in the world so that we could understand what God is like and to experience his presence in our lives. Peter says we're we're living stones, right? We're, We're part of this temple that God is using to construct to allow those that don't yet know him and those that do to encounter the presence of God on this planet. Jesus said what? Destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and in three days, I'll build it again. And we've already looked at that metaphor that we are the body of Christ, and then by analogy, then we are the temple of God in this world. We are the place, I think, where God wants to make his invisible presence visible where the transcendent God becomes the eminent God as we act as his temple in this world. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? I often wonder why God has done it this way. Because we often aren't a very good-looking temple. Living stones, sometimes we don't fit together really well, but God has chosen to work in this way to demonstrate who he is to the world around us. And as believers, we're stones that come together and we're supported by others and then hopefully we support others as well. We're coming together to be the temple, the place where people encounter the living God in this world. It's really cool to me when I see this operating. Um, I was privy this week Somebody gave an anonymous gift to somebody in the church and just to see the tears in that person's face that received that gift and to recognize, you know what, it's not just that person saying, okay, this is a gift that really helps right now, but you know what, God loves me. This is how I encounter the presence of God because his touch is on my life as he moves within God's people to demonstrate that he's real and that he's there. There's a really good book um, by Rosaria Butterfield. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And if you don't know Rosaria's story, she was a very liberal feminist, um, lesbian professor up at Syracuse, and she encountered Christ, and it turned her whole world upside down. But the way she encountered Christ was that she had written an op-ed about Promise Keepers. Some of you don't remember what Promise Keepers was, but it was a big men's conference, and she was like all down on that, and you know, said usually the Christians that would write to her would be really vitriolic and full of hatred, and, and a pastor actually wrote to her and said, hey, you know, made some valid points, and said, why don't you come over and, and have dinner? And Rosario was like, okay, I'm a PhD, I'm doing research on this, I'm going to write a paper on this, so I better (laughs) actually do some field research. So she went over to the pastor's house, and just through them opening up their home and just sharing their life, Rosario saw the living God as he was gracious and loving and kind and not judgmental and not 
condemning. And she's got this, she's married now, and uh, she and her husband have a ministry in uh, Durham, North Carolina, where every night of the week, and I'm not advocating this for everybody, but their table is just open to anybody in the neighborhood that wants to come in. And people just come in, and they share a meal, and they, they do a Bible study sometimes afterwards, or just pray for people, because it's her conviction that in our world, People are tired of hearing religious slogans and sayings. What they need to do is see the love of God in action, incarnated as a temple, as God's people gather to see the love there and say, wow, I've never experienced something like this before. God must be among you. I think the average American, their view of God and how we have a relationship with God, I, I need to have my personal relationship with God, right? And then I come to church for an hour, hour and a half, depending on how long that pastor winds on on Sunday morning, and then it's good, right? And I think this image of temple is challenging that view of what we are as believers. We are to be a place where people encounter the living God of the universe through how we love one another, through how we treat one another, through how we interact with one another, through how we share with one another, and that, I think, has to be more than an hour and a half on Sunday morning and my personal devotions or quiet time. Because this says that y'all are the temple. It's not, I'm the temple, and so I'm gonna go represent, yeah, I can represent aspects of God, but you know what? I'm a limited human being. I don't have all the gifts. So as we gather as a body, there's gonna be a more complete picture, and God's gonna be able to work in a deeper and more powerful way as we gather. And I'm encouraged by our church and OCF. They have meetings each week, and there's a meal that's shared, and there's, there's fellowship there, and then the word that's opened and, and exposited and shared, and it's like, okay, this is a place where the temple meets. It's the temple of God. It's a place where people can come. It's like, man, I don't know if I believe any about this God stuff, but you know, I'm open for a free meal, and <laughs> I'm going to go hang out, and then maybe, who knows what the Holy Spirit's going to do there as people encounter other people that seem to really genuinely care and love one another and aren't just about putting more bars on their shoulders, but are about living their lives in care of other people and using their position as a position to bless and not just to step on other people's to get ahead in that way. A friend of mine, um, Air Force Reserves and Matt's a really sharp guy. Um, he's been selected out of the reserves to go to a college up in Montgomery, completed that, and now he's in a new position. And his superior came and said, Matt, our plan for you in 10 years is you're going to be a two-star. And Matt said, you know what I really want to be is a chaplain. <laughs> and I just didn't, I don't know what to do with that, right? The reality is, okay, he's living for something bigger than just being a two-star. There's something more important to him than that. And as people gather, as God's people gather and say, yeah, there's something more important than being a two-star and then getting the next promotion than being superior to somebody else and how much you make, what kind of car you drive, how big your house is, all of those kind of things as we gather and say, no, we're called to something different. We're called to represent God on this planet. It's a great thing. So I encourage you to plug into a group at Grace, 
Maybe OCF, it may be a home group, it may be dispersion, which is a kind of college age and early career age group, but just we need to be getting together with one another, not only for our sake, but for the sake of we are the temple. We are to show other people this is the God of the universe. This is where his presence is made manifest to others. It's a challenge too, isn't it? Jesus cleansed the temple, right? And if we're to be a temple, we're to accurately reflect God to those that come and spend time with us. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says something really strong. He says, you know, because of you Jews and the way you're acting, totally inconsistent with what the truth of the word is, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And we don't have to look far in our world to see those that should be a holy temple set apart for God and his purposes to manifest his presence in this world to look at that and say, man, if that's what Christians are like, I want nothing to do with it. And every time one of these major leaders falls, it's front page on the news, right? Oh, that's what Christians are like. And I don't say that because I'm better than any of these people that have fallen, but I say that to sober us all and to recognize, you know what? We need to be really seeking to live out this relationship with Christ that we have because we have this incredible responsibility of being his temple, of representing him and the place where he wants to manifest his presence in our world today. So as a living stone... How smooth are your edges? How able are you to fit into the temple that God wants you to fit into, to take your place, to be that one that supports others and is supported by others? That's God calling for us as a body, as a community of believers. We are the temple. Are we a place where God's presence can be made manifest and shown as it really, really is? The second analogy I want to look at this morning is that we, the community of believers, we're all priests. We're here to represent God to people and to represent people before God. That was a priest's role, right? The priest went into the presence of God to come out to the people of God. And we looked at all of this as we were going through Exodus, right? And we see that role of the high priest He goes into the very presence of God and we looked at the fact that he has this ephod on, this chest piece, and it had 12 stones on that chest piece, right? Each one of those stones representing a tribe of Israel, the picture there that the priest is bringing the people before God and then he goes into God and he brings God's word and his truth out to the people as well. And Jesus says that we are called in a like manner to represent God to the people and the people to God. We see this in the Peter passage here. He says, verse 5 of chapter 2, You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then down in verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
And then in Revelation chapter 1, John says the same thing, that we are called as priests. In Revelation 1, I'll start in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So both John and Peter are saying, we are all priests. Now in the Old Testament, how did you become a priest? You were born into it, right? If you're of Aaron's line and a son of Levi, then you just have this priesthood given to you. How do we become priests? We're spiritually reborn, right? We all have a royal bloodline, Peter says. We are connected by the blood of Jesus Christ to the Father. And we have a high priest. In Hebrews 4, it says this high priest, he's able to sympathize with our weakness. He goes into the Father. He's made that way. The curtain has been torn in two. And we now, all of us, have access to the presence of God, which was only the prerogative of the high priest before. But why do we go into that presence? To encounter God, yes, but also to bring people before the throne of God. We're supposed to be a holy priesthood according to 1 Peter 5. To be holy means to be whole. To be functioning as God designed us to function as he created this world and he created us in this world. And to me, as I look at this, it's like that means all of me is submitted to God. There's not a part of me that's like, um, God, you can have 97.6% of me, but this 2.4%, <laughs> that's mine. Let's just, let's just keep out of that area because I want that. So God is calling us to be completely his. And if we look at our lives, we struggle with that, right? We look at our lives and we recognize, man, I'm, I'm not holy. As much as I may want to be and so to me, that brings us back to the reality that what makes us holy before God? It's Jesus Christ and what he's done. Hebrews 10, 14, he says, he's made perfect forever by one sacrifice. He's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. We are made complete in Christ before God, but we're in the process of being made holy. So if you don't feel like a completely holy priest, that's okay, we're in process, right? But it should be the target that we're aiming for. Again, I think we need to recognize that when we walk on this planet as God's people, we are representing God. And we, regardless if we open our mouths or not, are saying something about the character and the nature of God. By how we treat other people, by how we deal with those that may be working for us or we may be working for by how we handle our finances, by how we handle our relationships, all of that stuff. As his priests, we are called to represent God and to do that well. Again, we're not going to do this perfectly, right? But I think even in our failures, it's an opportunity to represent God well. If we go to them and say, you know what, I really blow it. That's not the kind of person that God is calling me to be. Would you please forgive me? 
You know how rare it is to hear an apology today without a justification? Yeah, I did that, but. There's always a but, right? But, da 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 I'm not really to blame because of this or that, or the apology actually becomes blame given to the other person. If you were a little bit different, I wouldn't have acted that way. Well, if you wouldn't have lost your temper, then mm, I wouldn't, you know. So we're called to be holy, to be set apart. And again, to me, we look at this and we look at the church today and it's like, wow, how are we doing at this, Lord? Are we representing you well to the world? And again, we live in kind of a strange culture where this whole celebrity Christian status can be and, and there's a few people that then represent God and then if something happens in their lives, then, you know, it seems to spill over on everybody and it seems like God is willing to have his reputation tarnished in order to redeem and bring those people back to a right relationship with him. But it's like how much better if we just embark on this journey with a sense of, yeah, I'm representing you, God, help me to do this well. Because I know this is really, really significant. So a priest is to be holy. The priest is also to offer sacrifices. First and foremost, we point to the one who provided the ultimate sacrifice, right? Jesus Christ. He was the one whose one sacrifice has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's who we point to. But also we're called to live our lives sacrificially for the sake of of others. And that's Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? <laughs> because God's done all this stuff for you. This is who you are. Then live into the reality of who you are. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This whole idea of living stones, living sacrifices, it's this metaphor that the temple is now kind of moving and fluid wherever we go. We're, we're to be a living sacrifice. We're to be a stone that's part of the temple that represents God in this world. Are we doing it well? We live in a very self-oriented culture. I know that. I'm part of it, right? Where our first concern and our second concern, and our third concern is often me, myself, and I. Yet God is calling us to be radically different than the world in that way. To be a priest that's willing to offer sacrifices so that other people can encounter God. And I think a huge part of the priesthood of all believers is supporting others in prayer and bringing them before the throne of God. In 1 Samuel 12, 23, Samuel talking to the people, he says, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Samuel sees his failure to pray as a sin <laughs> against the Lord. Jesus in Hebrews 7 is our high priest, and it says he always lives to what? To make intercession or to intercede for us. And I think we see so many people stumbling and falling and struggling in their Christian life because we as a body are not taking our responsibility seriously as priests to one another to pray and lift up and encourage one another in that process. We live in a tough time to be a Christian. And I hear over and over, man, this is just really, really hard. Why is it so hard? Well, we live basically in 
this time between the start of the kingdom and the ultimate culmination. And now we're in this kind of war zone. We're in enemy territory, and it's going to be difficult. If you read through the New Testament, there's no promises that the Christian life is going to be super easy. In fact, it says it's going to be difficult. Some of you may even lose your life for being a Christian. How do we get through that? I tell you, how we won't get through that is alone. When we don't have other brothers and sisters regularly praying for us, lifting us up, acting as our priests. You ever been in a place where you feel so disconnected from God that you can hardly pray? Something's happened in your life, you're just wondering how to put all this together and you just can't do it. But you've got a brother or sister who says, I'll be praying for you. And somehow you get through those times, and I think we get through those times because we've got others around us that are supporting us, bringing us before the throne of God and saying, you know what, Brett's really in a hard time. Lord, please, by your spirit, minister to his heart and help me to be able to do anything that you're calling me to do in his life. If there's truth that he needs to know, Lord, help me to recognize, you know what, it's not just the pastor's duty to communicate that. We're all to teach and admonish one another, all of us. The priesthood of all believers, someone has said, is the most neglected doctrine of the Reformation. Because we still live kind of in a day and age where we have Protestant popes, where there's one or two people in front that determine that. And it's like God is calling us to much more than that. We're called to be priests to one another. We're called to teach and admonish one another, all of us. It's not one person's responsibility. Though there are callings to be a pastor, that's not supposed to be the only time that you hear communication of God's truth and prayer from that person. It should be all of us doing that with one another. And if you've stumbled greatly to have a friend come and say, you know what, God still loves you. He forgives you, and I want you to know that. Sometimes we can read that, but hearing it from a fellow believer just makes a huge, huge difference in our lives. And that should be all this interconnectedness that's happening in the church because we are, all of us, priests. So are we lifting up our brothers and sisters? And then... I think another role of a priest is to empathically offer comfort and hope to other broken humans. As we go through life, it's tough, right? Circumstances hit us that are super challenging, and sometimes we handle those well and sometimes we don't. But in the book of Hebrews where it talks about Jesus as our high priest, he says, We're to approach him with boldness and confidence because he's able to sympathize with us because he's gone through the same things that we've gone through living on this planet. And if you read Rosaria Butterfield's story, it wasn't like she was hit like, you've got to change everything about your life before Jesus will love you. And somehow I think as Christians we get confused with offering love and equating that with approval. I can offer love to somebody and still not approve of what they're doing. Because that's what Jesus did to me. He offered me love before I was doing what he was calling me to do. So many areas of my life were out of whack. And Jesus said, you know what? (laughs) I still love you. And I want you to be part of my family. And then we'll start to work on that stuff. We often want to say, work on all that stuff. Then I'll hang out with you and... We'll work on this love thing. 
It's no, show love and then see what the Holy Spirit does in that relationship as you are representing him, as we gather together as people saying, you know what, God's grace is available to you. I'm not better than you. I've probably done much worse than you have. And I've been where you've been. It's not, ooh, it's you and it's me. It's us together. And one of the roles of the priest and what makes a priest good is that priest can empathize with those that he's or she is ministering to. It's not this, whoa, I've come down from the holy mountain, haven't been tempted in about 26 years, I'm just living perfectly, and you better get your act together or Jesus won't really love you. It's, I know exactly what's that like, what that is like, how can I help you? How can I show you Jesus? And we don't know what the Holy Spirit's going to do with that kind of love when we offer it to other people. And a priest sometimes has to deliver tough messages as well, right? Jesus with the woman at the well, he says, I'm not condemning you, go and sin no more. The lifestyle you are leading is, is wrong. And in that story, we always think of the woman, but they were caught in the act. There must have been a guy involved. What happened to him? A lot of Bible scholars feel like it was a setup, but the guy went scot-free. It's a very patriarchal society, right? And it's the woman that's getting harassed there. But Jesus said, I'm not condemning you. In fact, I love you, but there needs to be change because this is not going to lead to flourishing in your life. So how are we doing at being a temple? the place where people come to encounter God? Are they seeing the real God as we gather? And I think in a lot of times in our church, they are. They're seeing the love of God. They're seeing how we interact with one another and how we care about one another. And like Paul, I want to say, we're doing it. Let's do it more. How are we doing as being priests to one another? sharing truth with one another. It's not just a few people's responsibility in the church, though they may have formal teaching responsibilities. All of us are called to teach and to admonish one another. Admonish is that tough stuff, saying, hey, I don't think that's right. To me, where we need to look is to look at Jesus, who is the ultimate fulfillment of all of these pictures, right? He's the ultimate temple. He is the presence of God, the exact representation of God, God made manifest in the flesh. And as followers of Jesus, he wants us to be the same. What did Paul say? Imitate me, but he didn't stop there. He said, imitate me as I imitate who? Christ, right? So our ultimate imitation is to be of Christ. Lord, I want to be like you in this world, and as we gather as people, I want this body to be a place where people encounter you, the living Christ. How are we doing? How can we grow in that? Help us to do that better. And that Jesus is that ultimate high priest for us, the one that we can go to at all times to get mercy and find grace in our time of need, and then, Lord, am I being that kind of a person? Am I approachable, but can people come to me to experience mercy and to find grace in their time of need? Am I bringing these people like you do regularly before the throne of the Father saying, God, help us. We're in the midst of a battle here and it's tough. 
And without the support of one another, we're going to go down. And I see believers all the time going down. So Lord, help us to be in this as a cooperative effort as priests supporting and encouraging one another. And Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. When the disciples were arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, so oblivious to what was going on, Jesus kept saying, you know, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die there. And they're like, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? You know, it's like really dense. And he says, guys, he washes their feet. And he says, I am among you as one who serves. Are we having that kind of an attitude? That very few of us, I think, will be called to pay the ultimate price and sacrifice of giving our lives. Many believers around this world do that, even now. Yet sometimes I think it's harder to be that living sacrifice. It's the small things of life. It's the small acts of kindness where we have to get out of ourselves, not be selfish, and to do for somebody else that it gets really hard. But Jesus, again, perfectly, even when it wasn't comfortable for him, Father, is there any other way? He says, but not my will. Yours be done. Even if I don't like this, even if it's uncomfortable, if this is what you're asking me to do, Father, I'm willing to do it. And that took him to the cross where he bore every one of my sins and every one of your sins and the sins of the entire world on himself. Because he had to? No. Because he loved us. And he's given that incredibly high calling to us as well. To live our lives in service to other people. To represent him to other people. To collectively gather as his body and say, you know what, we're the place. You want to encounter the transcendent God of the universe? Come to OCF on Tuesday or Wednesday night. Come to our home group. Come hang around with me and another guy. We're going to have coffee on Thursday night. This is an incredibly huge challenge. We are the temple and we're all priests. And my prayer is that we'll rise to that challenge. This is who we are. Let's live towards that. And I think we rise to that challenge by first falling to our knees and saying, God, we cannot do this without you working in our lives. Because if you're like me, most fibers of my body are geared towards me. I don't want to serve. I want to be served. And so I need the Holy Spirit to envelop my life to transform me where I am thinking about other people first. It's the Philippians too, right? Have this attitude in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though in very nature being God, did not consider equality with God something to hold on to, but emptied himself and made himself nothing, taking on the form of a humble servant, ultimately giving his life for you and me. That's not a popular message in our day and age. 
People want to come to church and they want to hear, man, follow Jesus and everything will go super with you, man. You're going to get a promotion. You're not going to get sick. Everything is going to go wonderful in your life because, man, God wants everybody to be living in a couple million dollar house on the beach driving a really fancy sports car. And that's God's plan because you're a child of the king. I don't want to say, yeah, they've got that half right. You are a child of the king. And how did the king act? The king didn't have a place to lay his head. He came to serve, and yes, ultimately, it's all going to get really, really good for us. But the time right now we're living in is the tough time. It's the time where God's calling us, I want you to represent me. Be my temple. I want you to be my priest. I want you to represent me to the people, and I want you to bring the people before me in prayer and concern because you love them. Not to judge them, but to introduce them to me. And then I'll begin that process of transforming their lives from the inside out. I want to be part of a community like that. Where we're a family. Where we're a body. And where we're the place where people encounter the living God of the universe. Where his presence is made manifest. And when we're serving and loving and representing God well to one another. And being for one another as God is for us. Let's pray. Father, these are huge callings to be your temple and to be your priests. Yet, Lord, uh, we look at our lives and so often we fall so far short of what you're wanting to do in us. But thank you that you don't cast us aside. Thank you that we can come to you even now. So, Lord, I just want to give a moment for all of us here to ask what David ask that you would search our hearts and if there's any way in us that it isn't pleasing to you that Lord you would bring that to mind and then you would graciously forgive us and then you would empower us to change Lord we don't want to represent you in a way that is inaccurate so Lord just search our hearts even now Father, for a lot of us, silence is uncomfortable because it forces us to think and look at ourselves. Yet, Lord, that's not where you want the main focus to be. You're calling us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So, Lord, we don't want to leave this place discouraged by how much we lack, but encouraged by how much we have in Jesus Christ that he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. That you will equip us to be your temple, you will equip us to be your priests, to represent you well. Lord, we want to be more and more about that. So strengthen us for your glory. Help us to be willing to live in a sacrificial way, It's so unnatural for us, Lord, so we need your help. Thank you that even when we fall and stumble and blow it and are self-absorbed, you still love us. 
You forgive us when we come to you and you embrace us once again. That you'll never leave us and you'll never forsake us. That even when we're faithless, you remain faithful because that's who you are. So thank you for your tremendous grace and love. Lord, we want to be your people. Help us, we pray, for your glory and for your honor. And it's in Jesus' precious and powerful name I pray. Amen. Amen.